Can we start, please? Sorry, we're not sure about the acoustics. Can you hear me at the back? Oh. So always, whenever I ask that, it's always an interesting question, because if you can't hear me at the back, you would Anyway, you won't get it. Okay, welcome everybody. Um, as uh, I think you know, because uh, the promotional material said so, uh, this is the first of four sessions uh, which the Centre will be running for the rest of the year on 20 years of democracy. Um, I think you have the schedule of, of the next ones, but they will be advertised. But this is uh, the first of the series, and therefore it's, it's fairly wide-ranging. Speakers have been uh, allowed to choose their own topics, which means that uh, we didn't impose a theme. Uh, we have four speakers, so I will have to try to keep reasonable time, even if some of our speakers have major messages to convey <laughs> to the nation and the academic community. Uh, we've agreed on uh, a, an order here. Bolala Mangu will go first. Um, Carol, you go second? Yes. Yes, Carol Payton will go second. Vishwasatka will go third. And Tessa Dooms will go fourth. So, uh, in order to get to the substance of the event, rather than to listen to me drone on, um, I'm going to introduce uh, Kolela, who I think is probably familiar to most of you here. Um, he's attached to the Department of Sociology at UCT, where uh, his discipline is social theory, which uh, he was pointing out to us before the session means every anything you wanted to mean. <laughs> which is why most of us angle for jobs in social theory. So clearly, he's uh, stolen a march from some of the colleagues. Uh, he uh, has, uh, I, I think, a very uh, significant intellectual career in this country, author of the bio of biography of Steve Beaker, uh, author of several other works, uh, and uh, previously uh, at the HSRC at various universities and at the Center for Policy Studies, where where he and I worked together some years ago. Uh, people, what people don't know about Kolela, uh, which I think is relevant to what he's going to be talking to us about this evening, is that before he returned to South Africa uh, from the US, uh, he actually uh, attained his doctorate at Cornell, and his discipline, his area of study in his doctorate was housing. Uh, and urban issues. Uh, so the fact that he's going to speak to us tonight about cities as a new frontier in South African democracy, uh, I think is, uh, uh, among other things, uh, drawing on uh, the insights uh, which uh, he, he was contributing at that time. So, Paulella? Well, thank you, thank you, Stephen. Um, yes, I'm a renegade city planner. Um, but I haven't done city planning ever since I, I landed back from the US for a whole series of reasons. Um, so I've been actively thinking about, about cities for a very long time. And I thought I should, when I'm not doing theory, I should at least uh, do something that is outside of uh, my day job. And that, that I thought uh, should be the subject of cities and, and, and democracy. Um, my, my first engagement uh, with city planning, and I think this is important for, for understanding the argument I'm going to be making, actually was in, in 1987 um, at Vitz University. 
I had just completed my undergraduate and um, had actually started my, my LLB because I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, thank God I didn't go that way. <laughs> and, and we had a meeting uh, in front of the Wharton Weiler Library and it was a group of students and I can actually you know, uh, remember that meeting like it was yesterday. And the meeting centered on the question of whether we should break the, the age-old um, principle of the liberation struggle, which was non-collaboration with the institutions of the apartheid state. And we were going to break with this principle because um, we had figured that apartheid basically was on its hind legs and, and we needed, and, and circumstances around us were actually pushing us in many, many ways to, to fill in the vacuum that was opening up in many, many communities around the country. And we were privileged because uh, you know, I, I, I had left law and I decided as part of this conversation to go and study city planning, uh, development planning actually initially. And, and, and indeed, at, out of that meeting, I mean, there were many people at that meeting who, who have since, you know, you know, since went to occupy very important positions in government. Uh, those who come to mind, uh, for example, would be people like Pascal Moloi, who became a city manager in Joburg. Uh, Mandlan Gomfe, he became an MEC. Feroz Kachalia, Chris Nobo, Lawrence Boya, um, Kesha Shubani. I mean, I could go on and on. But there's a generation uh, of people who basically from that year in particular uh, have, have gone on to, to play these important policy roles. I chose uh, city planning and I went over to, in, to the United States to do my PhD in, in, in city planning. And this is long before 1990. And this is long before, because what we tend to, what we tend to do is when we think of the, the changes in this country, we tend to think of the conversations starting in 1990 or 1990 or, or, or the early 1990s. But I would, I would argue that around 1986, 1987, these conversations about negotiating a new settlement had already begun. And, and they had their own uh, interesting contradictions. Uh, because on the one hand, we wanted to hold on to our principles. I mean, one of the most hilarious moments actually was, uh, uh, is that after I finished uh, uh, with my master's, I went and joined the Development Bank of Southern Africa, which was itself a kind of like a very strange thing for a former revolutionary to go and do. But that was my first job, and uh, I joined the bank as as an urban specialist. And, I, and there are two moments from that period that I'll never forget. One is uh, when my boss um, walked in, um, uh, Dev Bota was his name, and he walked into my office and I was sleeping. And there was, but, but there was a big poster of Malcolm X on the wall. And he went red. And, it was, and I had to take that off. Um, but, but the other one was a call I received from Azapo. Now, Azapo had in public said they were not going to be part of these negotiations at all. And in fact, Azapo didn't even participate in the elections. But one of the ironies and contradictions of these things is getting a call from Azapo um, and uh, from senior, senior executives of Azapo asking if I could facilitate a meeting with the World Bank. And uh, we had this wonderful dinner at the top of the Carlton Hotel that nobody knows about. It shows you some of the contradictions of what was going on. 
Um, I'm just outing Azapu here. Um, the, 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 the long and short of what I am um, I'm, I'm, I'm arguing is that my entry into city planning uh, was primarily political. And what I want to argue is that um, in South Africa we've had a technocratic model of city planning that has failed. And we've got a, a technocratic model of local government that has failed. And uh, in this paper I argue that we actually need to go back to the political model of city planning that obtained or that was beginning to develop in the 1980s. Um, but, I, uh, but I'm also making this point about a political approach or a political model of cities to make another, um, um, uh, or to convey another, another point, uh, which has to do with the changes that are taking place in South Africa today, the electoral changes particularly where the ANC did fairly badly uh, in the metros. And I think that, in a way, uh, could be an inauguration of where the local politics uh, is going to become much more important than it ever was in the, in, in, in the past 20 years. And in that sense, we might be coming full circle to the kind of political uh, model that I argue for. There's also, of course, a sociological dimension to this, um, which I think is also critical in understanding the role that cities are going to play. First of all, the role that cities have always played uh, in, in social change and in, and in political change, and the role that they are still going to, to play. Um, Basically, any most world historical changes that you can imagine have taken place in cities. Whether you're talking about you know, the French Revolution, or you're talking about Shabville uh, or, or Soweto, or, but for the most part, cities have been the centers of political mobilization. They've been at the heart of, if you like, political modernity. Um, Chicago, Paris, Tokyo, Mexico City in 1968, uh, that's where you saw um, a great deal of political change taking place in the cities. And yet, despite this central role that cities have played, um, literally as, as seedbirds of, of modernity, there's hardly any theory or any literature in South Africa of cities of the politics of cities, or of cities as political, um, of the political function of cities, if you like. And, 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 and the discourse that we are locked in, of course, is the idea of cities as purely development sites, at, at best, but at worst, as really sort of like cost centers. Uh, and even if you look at, at the appointment of Pravin Godan as, uh, as, as the new you know, uh, Minister of Cooperative Development, it, it, it comes exactly out of this notion of cities as cost centers. He's going to come and he's going to fix the budgets. And he's going to, I can tell you now, it's not going to work. And that's because that is not how cities work. 
cities work <coughs> as much more than than uh, than cost centers or even as sites of development. Cities are primarily um, political spaces and, and and spaces of democracy and then spaces to which we owe democracy and and modernity as 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 we know it. Now this has implications. <coughs> Um, for political parties. Because cities can, in fact, be quite formidable political foes. Quite formidable in the sense that not even totalitarian regimes are able to actually eviscerate completely what happens in the cities. Because cities, um, uh, to, to cite David Harvey, have, have got the, their own sort of plasticity. Uh, that cities, by their very, by very nature, are not owned by anybody. And cities came into being actually precisely because they are not owned by anybody. They came into being as, as, as a dissolution of, of ties with, with, uh, with traditional relationships um, or, even, or even with religious um, identities. They came, uh, or with group identities even, they, they, they became the centers where human beings could assert their individual autonomy. And it is precisely because of this multiplicity of individual autonomies and roles that it becomes very difficult to pin down the, the identity of cities, particularly the political identity of cities. And so city planning itself emerged, if you like, as a response uh, to this plasticity of cities, to this plurality, as, if you like, an attempt to discipline cities and to give them a particular logic, particularly by, by, by the business elites and, and, and governments. And this starts in Chicago in the late 19th century. But it extends, of course, throughout the 20th century with uh, actually even in, in the 19th century with people like Haussmann in Paris, um, with Be uh, Daniel Bernheim in Chicago, with uh, Le Corbusier in France, Robert Moses in New York, but, but city planning basically develops as an attempt to try and discipline and give identity to the city. But the city always spoke back, if you like. Um, and I, and, and, uh, and I think in many, many ways, uh, we have in this country over the past 20 years followed the path of Le Corbusier or the path of, of Robert Moses in the way we've been thinking about cities, purely as technocratic or, or financial um, or you know, cost accounts, uh, cost, uh, cost centers. Um, and of course, in South Africa, as everywhere else in the world, um, the cities in their multiplicity, in their cultural multi multiplicity in particular, but also just individual human beings <coughs> asserting their own autonomies have actually fought back against that and they have rebelled in so many, many ways. Now, we call that service delivery protests. And that's one of the most mistaken descriptions you can ever give to what is actually an incredibly complex sociological process that, in my view, goes back to the birth of modernity, to the idea that people, when they come to the cities, 
they begin to assert their autonomy and their needs, and those needs cannot be captured, even by development, even by what you call service delivery. Because ultimately, those, those needs are, uh, have everything to do with the experience and the sensibility of what it means to be modern. And what it means to be modern can never be satisfied by simply services um, or balancing your budgets. It has to do with the cultural um, dimensions that are taking place at any given city at any given time. And of course, uh, in Europe, in the United States, and everywhere else in the world, um, the, the, this, this um, coming together of cities as, as, as political uh, spaces, political with a small p, not, not party political, uh, is what in many, many ways uh, brought a change to city planning. Because then, the, the, that whole narrative of cities trying to discipline communities was challenged. And it was challenged more than any place else I know in the United States in a city called Chicago. Which, interestingly enough, was the birth of city planning. So the irony is that that model of city planning would be challenged uh, in that very same city. And that is what drew me to Chicago for my, for my PhD. It was on, on city planning in Chicago but an alternative way of thinking about cities. And it was looking at, at, at Chicago under the, 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 the rule of, or, or, or the leadership of its first black mayor, uh, Harold Washington. It's a, it's a story that's not very well known in, in, in South Africa, but it's a celebrated uh, story in the United States as possibly the best example of cities <coughs> as political spaces and some would argue of Chicago and Harold Washington as probably the best example of local government in the United States. And that's my next book. So wh what is the relevance of this? Um, the relevance of this is that um, I think that's what's beginning to happen in South Africa. That, that communities and individuals and people are doing exactly what I witnessed, or I, I think I've witnessed in other parts of the world through what we call self-service delivery, self delivery projects. Um, the irony, of course, and, I, and, and, and I'll, I'll wind down on this, the irony, of course, is that having spent five or six years studying um, Harold Washington's uh, administration in Chicago, I came back to South Africa. Now, one of the things Harold Washington had done successfully, which is why he was so celebrated, is that he had successfully reformed the, 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 the racism and, um, the, and the corruption that had characterized Chicago for well over a century. Well, some people would argue about how successful he was, but nonetheless, he had done a great job. One of the ironies, of course, is that after I finished my PhD, I came back to South Africa, which is probably why I ended up not doing city planning at all. I came back to South Africa and I found exactly the kind of city planning that Harold Washington was challenging or had challenged in Chicago. I found in South Africa the very same kind of local government and city planning that was practiced for decades by Richard Daly in Chicago. A corrupt local government, um, well, you couldn't say it's a racist gov local government in, Chicago, in South Africa, but it was indeed very, in very many, many ways a corrupt um, local government. And, and as I say, with Chicago, it took, if, it, if it took a political movement in Chicago um, 
to reform it, I would argue that in South Africa, it will also need a political movement to actually reform local government. And none of the technocratic uh, solutions that, um, that have been put forward, including province's <coughs> um, appointment, will make the difference. Um, and so, um, over and up, so we need to break, if you like, with the, the technocratic conception of, uh, of local government that we've been laboring under for, um, for so long. <coughs> the last election results, I think, and I'll close on this, uh, speak to what I'm, 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 I'm talking about. That the, the, the ANC, in many, many ways, is, is experiencing uh, the, this dissolution uh, between traditional ties uh, that happened at the beginning of modernity and autonomy of individuals that happened um, with the beginning of cities. And I think that in South Africa what's happening now is that as people are coming into the cities, uh, it's actually going to be very difficult to actually discipline them politically, to actually give them a political identity that you can then um, mobilize as a political party. And I think that the, 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 the loss of support in the major metropolitan areas is an indication of how difficult it's going to be. And the difficulty has particularly to do with, in fact, that you don't have a political foe that you can actually point a finger to. It's not the DA, uh, it's not any other thing. It, it, it is a very sociological process that I think brought down a party. And unless we think about cities in that way, uh, I think we'll, we'll, we'll be, we'll, we'll, even the ANC won't be, won't be understanding actually what is coming in, in, in its way in terms of the sociological dynamics. So that is really the message I wanted, I wanted to convey, that we need to find a new way of thinking about, about democracy itself. Um, and of course, uh, um, about thinking about if, if cities are indeed political spaces, then that should have implications for how we organize our elections. Um, because, uh, because our democracy is based so much at the national level. And I think that we need to, to ask questions about local citizenship and about the politics of small things and whether those politics of small things are better addressed in the current technocratic system or by a new political model uh, that is really about local democracy. Thank you. So I, I think my, any of you have not had this experience. Chairs of meetings have have very simple horizons. We, we're very sort of slavish folk, and, and what we do is we sit here and try to work out whether the, the, the speaker's going to finish in time. Uh, a speaker who finishes two minutes early uh, gets some kind of medal or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but just to, just, just, just to thank Kulela, I think this is a very important perspective. We don't, we don't talk about cities nearly enough. And uh, uh, I don't know whether I'm abusing the chair, but just uh, his point about the technocratic model of, of, of looking at cities, just to make him feel better about his argument, uh, a group of us were invited about a month ago, uh, shortly after the election, in fact, to, to a meeting with the new minister of local government and his team. And of the entire cabinet, besides the Minister of Local Government, only one other cabinet minister was invited to discuss local government. Which minister? Okay. The Minister of Finance. <laughs> 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 so there we are. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
so it's an interesting perspective on this idea of, of seeing cities as cost centers rather than seeing them as laboratories of democracy. So I think there's a lot to chew on there. Just one point uh, for information before I introduce our next speaker, which I should have mentioned at the beginning. Uh, we're, uh, we're, we're sort of drag gradually inching into the 21st century at the center. Um, this evening's proceedings are being recorded here. And the reason they're going, being recorded is that we're going to try to podcast them. Uh, which means that people who were not here this evening, and particularly people elsewhere in the country who expressed interest in this particular discussion, uh, will be able to follow the proceedings if they wish to. Uh, so the good news is that uh, the audience will hopefully be wider than everybody who's in the room this evening. Our next speaker is, is Carol Patton, who is uh, the exception on the panel. And the reason she's the exception on the panel is that she's the only person on the panel who is not uh, attached to a university at the moment. Uh, and uh, the obvious question is, why did we invite somebody who's not attached to a university? Um, uh, Carol is the uh, writer at large at Business Day. She's previously worked uh, at uh, uh, the Financial Mail. Uh, she uh, writes on a, a number of policy-related issues. Uh, and uh, there are two reasons to inviting her to, to a semi, inviting her to a semi-academic function. Uh, the one is uh, that there is always a need, uh, I think, to uh, infuse uh, our academic discussions uh, with insights from people who are actually dealing uh, with uh, the day-to-day -day, uh, development in our of our democracy, uh, which which Carol Payton certainly is. Uh, I think the other point, which is, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if Cornell is allowed to kind of out as up, or I'm entitled to take gig digs at colleagues, I think if we look at the intellectual environment in this country, um, we have a, a great many academics uh, who have kind of turned academic activity into a sort of gossip factory, and you hear in public gossiping about politicians. Uh, and, and, and we have a very small group of journalists who are actually trying to use journalism uh, to enable us to understand the society. Uh, and Carol Payton, fortunately, is one of the journalists who are trying to understand this, help us to understand the society, uh, and, and therefore, I think, is a much more appropriate uh, addition to this panel uh, than journalists, uh, than academics who want to share gossip. Uh, she will be talking about, uh, I think, a very important issue in this country. Uh, you know, one of the projects uh, which was supposed to uh, be central to South African democracy was deracializing the society and deracializing the economy. And she's therefore going to be talking to us uh, about 20 years of black economic empowerment uh, and its relationship to democracy. Thank you very much. I'm uh, very puzzled as to why I got invited, but well, thank you know. for telling me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I'd just like to say, if Colella is uh, uh, the expert of social theory, and can, which means he can, he can do whatever he wants, I'm the writer at large, which also means I can oh, write great, about yeah. whatever I want. Um, okay, I was, I was told I can choose any topic, so I chose um, Black Economic Empowerment because I felt that it was just something I was thinking about at the time and 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 I wanted to put that on the table because um, I realized afterwards it probably wasn't a good choice because people have such strong feelings about BE. They either think it's really bad or they think it's really, really too slow. 
So um, I'm not standing here to either advocate or, 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 or be, be a critic, really, but just to say that as an observer, as someone who's trying to um, make sense of, of, of our society, I really do think it's one of the most profound things that's, that's, um, that's happening and one of the most interesting things to look at. So I've got two arguments, really, that um, about why this is, this is an important thing. Uh, by the way, I don't have a watch. Um, I do. I've got two arguments as to why I think this is, this is really worth looking at now. Um, the first is because I think we've arrived at a point now, after 20 years of, of democracy, um, where we're going to see the importance <coughs> of a black uh, participation in the economy grow and come to dominate an increasing number of um, policy choices and, and policy decisions. Now that's because obviously deracialization of the economy and the, and, and, the, and the society needs to happen for sustainability. So there are rational reasons um, um, behind it, um, but also because B is, is such an, is the key vehicle for the formation of a new elite, and um, which in itself is a much more sort of profound and powerful process um, than just the policy of black of black economic um, empowerment, and then. My second uh, argument, or the second thing that I'm thinking about a lot, um, is um, that I think that the success and the, the, the ability of the ANC to accelerate the BEE project and to um, build a coherent and strong middle class and rally society at large behind this, this nation-building project will be key as to whether it actually manages to stay in, in power in, in, in for the next 20 years. And that's especially the case, <coughs> I think, because I don't expect large, um, um, big uh, improvements in economic growth and um, rolling back of poverty and so on. So we've had BE, um, which, yes, deracialization was always a big, an important, um, uh, you know, um, objective of, of, of the new society. But BE was never really, it was really a very understated um, policy. So um, you, 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 you know, people would vote for the ANC and vote for the ANC for a range of like social policies that are put forward as, as being its, its objective, but never really for um, the fact that equity stakes in companies should be transferred to black individuals um, and so on. And politically you might say, well, look, um, I vote for the ANC or I support the ANC because I support the, the nation building project and BE is very much part of that new nation building project. Um, but even in their official sort of literature, the ANC tends to argue that well, the nation-building project is, is, is should be and is is led by by the working class. So um, it's been sort of almost in the background and not really um, discussed um, as part of the political discourse. Instead, what we've kind of focused on is we focused a lot on the ideological debates within the ANC alliance. So we've discussed ad nauseum, you know the the, the ins and outs of the Kosato SSCP ANC alliance, how what this means for for um, our politics, um, when in fact actually what's had a much more profound effect on the society, on the nature of the state, on the nature of the ANC, and on um, the nature of the labour movement, is actually is, is black economic empowerment and this whole um, process of um, of, of, of for a new, forming a new elite. Um, Okay. 
And I think also, you know, when it comes to, to successes, the successes of the, of the transition, <coughs> the big success has been in deracializing the top part of the, the economy. So you've had, you know, a big um, growth in um, the African middle class, uh, which, which is now as big as, as, as the white middle class. And that's, that kind of change has been much more profound than the change at the bottom level of, um, you know, of, um, of working class lives. Um, and then I do think that you know one could look in, in depth, um, very interestingly and profitably, at, at the impact that BEs had on the state, on the labour movement, and on the and on the ANC. And I think it's it's had a very transformative effect on all of those um, institutions. So I think we're already just going back to my argument about we're going to see more BE. I think we're already seeing more BE. I think that when um, people talk about the radical socio-economic transformation, which is um, the, the word which is now used in every ministerial speech, um, what is really being meant is, is, is faster BE, more BE, a bit of redistribution and um, a bit of uh, social delivery. So we've seen the real pumping up of uh, BE legislation, we've had a revision, a complete revision of the codes and the balanced scorecard and all of those things, so it's going to be much more difficult for a company to get around um, the BEE um, requirements and they're going to have to do much more to actually be considered BEE compliant. And then you see in kind of key policies, especially in the mining and, and energy areas, um, where there's been a, a, re a much bigger push for both state involvement and, um, and BEE. And while the nationalization issue was sort of a couple of years ago, the, the, big, the big talking point, that's kind of dropped off the agenda and really actually what we're talking about now is, 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 is ownership transformation. So we've come back to, after the diversion, come back to um, the issue of ownership. Um, yeah, and I think also um, it's having, you know, the imperative of black economic empowerment is having um, a bigger and bigger effect on decisions and appointments that are made. So one can look at, um, you know, for instance, cabinet appointments through the prism of, of empowerment, and you can actually um, tell quite a compelling story as to as to why some of them were made. So, um, well, I would say that um, Karin Gordon was appointed um, not so much to get the cost centres in order, but because he was fired from the finance ministry, and um, and. One of the reasons is he's, he has been a big uh, obstacle to the black empowerment lobby, and he has, yes, he has, he has um, actively prevented um, um, the black empowerment lobby from getting uh, more a bigger slice of, of state um, state procurement. Um, so that's just just um, one example. I don't want to go on too much. How much more time have I got? Um, another twelve minutes. Okay, so. In, in this kind of context, also propelling this sort of like greater emphasis on BE is a very real frustration, I think, amongst a lot of people, um, a lot of black people, that we're actually not moving fast enough. And it just so happens that that frustration of that sort of aspirant um, capitalist and upper middle class um, strata feeds directly into the, the ANC leadership. So there's a complete... Um, um, congruence of, 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 of interests. Um, now, if we look at the impact of BE, I thought, you know, I don't know 
whether I should go there. EPEF has had various phases. So we started off with the phase of sort of where individuals just got big controlling stakes. Then we said, no, we've got to move to broad-based BEE because it's not good that these individuals are getting um, too much. And then we had the codes, and all that happened there was that um, um, people just all that people got got stakes which they actually couldn't um, non-controlling stakes in companies or um, stakes that were so encumbered that they actually couldn't exercise um, any control. So if you look it up, um, the, as I said at the beginning, I mean everyone's everyone's got a strong opinion on BE. So try and uh, work out sort of how successful has BE been over the last 20 years. And um, the Black Business Council was saying that um, this was a couple of years ago, about two years ago. Um, their argument was that no, 5% of the J JSE has, has, is owned by um, black people and therefore that is, BE is clearly a failure. So the JSE um, got really annoyed at this um, constant harping of the Black Business Council saying it's 5%. They did their own research and they took out all the institutional investors, which is 40% of, of, of the JSE, all the foreign investors, which is 34% of the of the, of the JSE and were left with 24% of local direct investors, which then they broke down um, into definitely 21% BEE, 22% non-BEE, and an unmeasured um, portion. So that tells um, quite a different story. So how you count it is, is, um, is very important. Same with the mining charter. Um, the mining charter, the deadline for the mining charter will come up at the end of this year and um, all mining companies are supposed to have 26% black ownership. So when they did the sort of halfway point audit, which was in 2009, the target was 15%. So an audit firm came in and measured it, black audit firm came in and measured it, and they found it to be, ownership to be 9.8%. When the Chamber of Mines did the calculation, they found uh, black ownership to be 26%. So we can look forward to another big argument on that. And it's, it goes to how you measure and whether you measure effective value or uh, whether you count debt. Um, and then economy-wide, um, there has been a big improvement. Since the, since the board-based codes came in, um, most, most half, I'd say, the, no, the average score, the average BE score across the country is, is on, the, on the empowerment codes at a level of four, which is which means a, a compliant level. So that means that the average company out there is, is, is making some efforts. You could argue, well, they were just too easy, but um, they are making some efforts. Okay, the downside, I think we're all sort of kind of aware of the downside of BEE, um, the fact that it encourages this rent-seeking behavior that um, you don't get, um, you don't, doesn't build real entrepreneurs or industrialists because you just it's just too easy to to just um, take a stake and sit passively by and wait for that, wait, wait for the time to cash it in. Um, the high concentration of um, of the of the South African economy also made it made the financing issue a lot more difficult than, say, in other African states where um, you know that kind of change of the owning class is happening far more quickly. Am I running out of time? No. Uh, you've got seven minutes. Oh, good. Five. Okay. Um, and then obviously the diversion of state resources um, that could have been used uh, for social purposes um, 
being diverted into um, tenders from tenantpreneurs of things that don't get built or break or so on and so on. Um, the diversion of, 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 of um, scarce resources, so funding, 600 billion has gone into, into, into black economic empowerment, whereas 150 billion has gone into, into low-cost housing. So, the, so they're big trade-offs, and, um, and we're not kind of, no one's really added up, uh, or I don't think it's actually possible for anyone to, to, to decide which side of the balance sheet um, is better because it just depends on so much on your, um, on your, on your starting point. And we, never, and we never have the same starting point. Um, and corruption, obviously, um, I don't I think the insidious effect that it's had on the ruling party, and the fact that the ruling party has actually actively engaged in um, picking people for, for BEE deals and selecting who gets what, or who's getting what, who's in next in line to get a stake in a mining company and so on, which, which is obviously very controversial. I'll give you a quote from um, uh, an ethical BEE businessman. Okay, For, uh, let me, he's a former businessman. He's an ethical BEE businessman. He says to me, <coughs> when I'm trying to get him to talk about how this BEE works, he says, you would be mad or naive not to have realized by now that, that this is how it works. Core people are put forward by government and by Latuli House and you are told that whoever else you want to include in the train is fine. But certain people are non-negotiable. That is why all these deals come back to the politically connected. And there's obviously a, a, a very uh, dangerous link there with party funding because the, the, the payback can often be, because party funding is secret, the payback can often be you give some to a party and you shut up and everyone's happy because um, we all got something out of this deal. Um, has BE been good for South Africa's democracy? Well, um, that's something I hope people will give their views on. Um, I think that clearly it has contributed, it's not the only factor, but it has contributed to deracializing um, the class structure. Um, life without the, economic without the redistribution of economic assets uh, life now as it would have been in 1994, I don't think it would have been uh, an option, a viable option. Um, you know, could we deracialize the economy perhaps um, without dealing with the ownership issue? So the old sort of DA model of a merit society. So let's not, you know, let's educate everyone and give everyone opportunities and bring everyone up and then um, the ownership issue will sort itself out. Well, I think we can see that that definitely um, wouldn't have worked, even if you know, even with a whole lot of active measures, we haven't seen a massive change in um, ownership. Um, a different model, maybe nationalise um, the sort of EFF model. Um, I don't know. I don't think um, I don't think that's that's viable. I don't think um, <coughs> if, that, if we had followed that route, we would we would be. Um, here today, uh, with with an economy that's that's that still works, um, with and with assets that it would have retained their value, and actually with a, a real redistribution having taken place, um, a middle way, a kind of a Kasatu SACP alternative, where you have like a large um, state sector, but you also have the sort of like private sector. Um, 
and you have a sort of cooperatives and sort of, you know, more democratic sector. Um, but what then do you do about monopoly capital, the mines, the finance, the banks? Um, do you just leave those in, 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 in white hands and foreign hands, or what do you do with, with those? So, so none of the solutions or options really present themselves as, <coughs> as, as easy or like pretty or, or nice, to, nice, to, um, nice to have. Okay, I'm going to end off with a quote from an ethical businessman. No, no, the first one was an ethical BEE businessman. This is a white guy. <laughs> he says, I've been doing empowerment deals for 15 years and I don't like any of it. Every time one comes along, I get a sick feeling in my stomach. It comes with vested interests that are often problematic and vulnerable and to accusations of conflicts of interests. We have not yet found the best solution to achieving a broader share in the benefit <coughs> of mining in SA. But we have a job to do for the company, which is to ensure compliance for the country, and uh, for, to, which is to ensure compliance, and for the country, which is to spread the word. So we continue to not only get excellent content, but excellent timekeeping. <laughs> uh, the first thing you would have learned from, from Carol's presentation is that there are two ethical business people <laughs> in this country. <laughs> <laughs> Eth ethical and inverted uh, I was going to say, I, I think it was, was a little bit more than I was thinking. But, anyway. um, but I think you know, there are a number of very important issues raised here. The question of, of de-rationalizing the economy, I mean, we're going to be hearing uh, uh, about uh, inequality and poverty in a sense in a moment, but the, the uh, question of, of, of the black middle class and the black business class I think is a, is, is, is a very important issue in our democracy. I think also the issue that Carol raised towards the end, uh, the question of the relationship between money and politics is very important and, and, and just hot uh, off the presses as I was uh, Listening to the radio this afternoon, Mr. Malema was in Parliament uh, announcing, and I think I'm quoting almost directly, that revealing where political parties get their funding would destroy democracy in South Africa and lead to a one-party state. And he was kind of halfway through the sentence, I thought to myself, who's funding you? <laughs> <laughs> so that might be something interesting to... So that's something to ponder. <laughs> All right, our next speaker is Vishwa Satka, who is Senior Lecturer in International Relations at, uh, at WITS, but he's many other things as well. He's, uh, I think, a very uh, important left thinker in South Africa. He has the minimum qualification of any left thinker in South Africa, which was that he was in the South African Communist Party. He's no longer. Uh, I can't remember whether he achieved uh, the heights of his colleague, Mazibuko Jaha, who was actually thrown out of the party. Or were we both? You were thrown out. Okay, so then he's a serious left intellectual because he didn't leave of his own accord. He was thrown out, like Mazibuko, like Dermakiri, and various others. Um, he... Uh, is also uh, a, a co-founder of the Democratic Left Front. Uh, he writes uh, on uh, labor issues and, and uh, on uh, politics, the, the politics of inequality and poverty. Uh, he has, I, I should on a personal note, uh, he, he has been persecuting me for many years 
uh, he decided, I think, at one stage that uh, I, I, was, I was a dangerous bourgeois reformist and he's been trying to convert me ever since. Uh, and I would be hostile to him, but uh, last, you know, over the last year, he has had an incredibly painful personal experience for, for which I, I, I have to forgive him, uh, and that is that he has spent a year teaching my son international relations. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. I, I'm actually going to go up to that point okay. because I can't see people at the, All right. at the back of the room. If you go over 20 minutes, I have to wait. Yeah, I know, that's fine. Um, I'm going to be listening. Um, I also think you guys are not going to enjoy my humor. Well, <laughs> um, thanks to the Center for the Study of Democracy, Stephen, Sharon, and your team. Um, thanks to all of you for braving the cold and coming out this evening. Uh, when I was growing up, we shared a lot of fundamental jokes. Um, I heard one recently, and apparently Fandamarva was having this gathering at his house, and it's a bright place, um, so his friends gather, they come together, and one of his friends is very, very perturbed about South Africa, and tells him, you know what, Fandamarva, uh, South Africa is going up in flames. Fandamarva looks at him, scratches his forehead. Ah, man, let's just stop crying for a while, it'll be fine. <laughs> so, corner joke, corner joke. But anyway, um, it's, 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 it's a joke in a strange way reflective of the state of mind of some sections of South African society. Um, uh, Self-interested concern, denial, uh, and a sense of obliviousness of what's going on. In the main, that middle and upper class that have benefited from de-racializing uh, the structures of, of South African capitalism. Those who earn over 5,600 a month or over 40,000. Um, this, is, this is the middle class that embraces this miracle and, and the, the idealized rainbow. But it's also um, an attitude displayed by this new plutocratic uh, elite, the BE balance that we've been hearing about, the new gilded age in which they prevail that Thomas Piketty talks about in his book on capital uh, in the 21st century. Um, but unlike Van der Merwe, this uh, new plutocratic class and elite recognize the importance of sharing a few bits of meat and crumbs with the masses. Uh, but moreover, I want to just say that you know, there's a lot of euphoria around 20 years of democracy, uh, uh, similar to the kind of shallow euphoria we've had uh, around the much-wanted World Cup. Um, but Despite all of this, and alongside this, there is a sense of breakdown, of social breakdown in our society. It seems like we're gridlocked. Um, it seems like we're stuck in a hiatus. And this hiatus um, is there despite the economic, econometric propaganda we hear all the time about quantitative targets being hit, houses being built, taps delivered, schools, and so on. Uh, we all know that this narrative of quantitative delivery is simplistic and it's sanitized. And it is intended to deny an appreciation of the contradictions and limits of all of this. So we know, for example, the police that are meant to provide us with a public good, private security is larger than public uh, policing in this country. We know that the abate pattern of urban settlement has continued despite five million houses being built. We know that labor law flexibility is here um, despite having labor standards. We have labor brokers, we have atypical work, and so on. But in everyday South Africa, we also witnessing, we very witnessed children being dragged, uh, in carjackings, Anin Boysen, uh, violence against women and children, widespread rape. Uh, we just heard the labor market figures the other day. 
over 5 million South Africans now unemployed. Um, but I should just kind of rein myself in. I'm not here to peddle catastrophism to you all tonight. Um, there's definitely uh, hope in this grim reality. And I hope, hopefully we'll get there. Um, how many of you enjoy Trevor Noah? <laughs> well, Trevor Noah is standing at the end of the tunnel with the rainbow-colored gandhi cap. And wait and see, he's going to be there. So I want to talk about the crisis of democracy in two senses. The crisis of the meaning of South African democracy. It's called different things. It's called liberal democracy. And yes, there are liberal values embedded in the constitutional order. But they are also post-liberal values, and they are alternative values to liberalism. Participatory democracy, positive freedoms like socioeconomic rights. We also call this democracy constitutional democracy. And yes, that's important. It's about a distribution of power and a justiciable constitution. But at the same time, the juridification of politics is not sufficient to deal with the widening gap between rich and poor. We also call this democracy a majoritarian democracy. And the ruling party always reminds us about this, that it gets a mandate from the majority, gives it license to rule as it pleases, and in a sense places it above the constitution. And yes, the majority does give a mandate to the ruling parties. But the ruling party, like other parties in this country, are not accountable to the electorates. They're actually accountable to markets. Now, there's a st classification struggle going on in South Africa. And I want to contend that none of these conceptions of democracy, while valid and affirm dimensions of South Africa's democracy, appreciate the nature of power and the political in South Africa. Actually, all these conceptions of democracy are blind to the realities of a globalizing political econ economy. Power in South Africa resides with globalizing capital and the markets that buttress it. Now, this is not exceptional. South Africa has, lives, and has constituted an Afro-neoliberal democracy. And I want to put this in inverted commas, because it's an oxymoronic couple. And this democracy is also in crisis. The second sense uh, in which democracy is in crisis uh, has to be understood in terms of a larger picture that, that I just want to sketch to you very quickly. How's my time? Um, oh, no, you're doing fine. Okay. You've got uh, I want to take a detour 13 minutes. Okay, I want to take a detour into the global. <laughs> the crisis of Afro-neoliberal democracy in South Africa is, is synonymous with the crisis of neoliberal democracy on the planet. Now, neoliberalism, or the neoliberalism, privileges the power of capital over society and the state. It is about removing any political control over capital. It is a world view of transnational capital, particularly its transnational fraction, which wants, to, which wants to achieve a global capitalist and market civilization, in which we can commodify everything. There's possessive individualism that's rampant, and market control reigns supreme. So the hegemonic role and growing supremacist dominance of the United States, this worldview has been diffused in guiding the remaking of the global political economy over the past three decades. It is synonymous with the Americans' conception of what democracy is today. Now, Karl Polanyi, writing in 1944, at the end of two world wars, in his classic, The Great Transformation, warned against the unfettered free market. He cautioned against the destructive logic of the market over society and nature. He also observed how the counter-movement to this, amongst other things, also gave rise to fascism. The world we are living in is different, but analogous to 
the marketized world Pilati observed at the beginning of the 20th century. The consequences of the neoliberalized <coughs> world order for democracy are patently clear. Democracy has been hollowed out. The power of corporations reigns supreme across the planet. In the US, most mainstream analysts, and I was at Berkeley recently walking through bookshops, and they all are obsessed with this one particular topic of discussion, the crisis of American democracy. And particularly since the 2007 stroke 2008 crisis and the massive bailouts given to financial houses and business as usual since then, there is talk in this literature and in this public <coughs> debate about corporate capture of democracy, and it's not the usual suspects like Noam Chomsky talking about this. There's talk about post-liberal democracy, managerial society in which the corporate executive has displaced the barbarian professional bureaucrat, even in governments and institutions across society. In the European Union, neoliberalization has concentrated power in the European Commission and the European Central Bank, engendering a deficit in democracy across all European countries. In Africa, we have increasingly become used to choiceless democracies. Parties once elected merely uh, to do the bidding of the World Bank, the IMF, and the WTO. Another consequence of all of this is that while neoliberalism has served to strengthen the power of the US in the late 20th century world order by giving it control over global financial markets, this has produced a world in regression with widening inequality and obscene concentrations of wealth amongst a plutocratic class, documented in Piketty's famous book now. For the Occupy movement, this has been about privileging the interests of the 1%. The third consequence of this is finance and carbon-based capital have come together to ensure we cannot face the greatest challenge we face as a species, climate change. Carbon-based derivatives called carbon trading markets, carbon offset schemes, are meant to stop the collapse of the Antarctic and sea level rise, the receding Arctic ice sheet, and massive methane emissions coming out of this, the depletion of glaciers on the third pole, that is Tibet, which supports major riverine systems that support civilizations in South and East Asia. The financialized solutions have failed where they have been tried and will not work to address climate change. In short, neoliberal democracies are impervious to transformative solutions that can actively ensure a just transition for our societies in this context. Lastly, finally, neoliberal capitalism is engendered as part of a counter-movement, a new extreme right wing. From neocons and the Tea Party hacks to religious fundamentalists to extreme nationalists, authoritarian capitalists, the Chinese alternative, and even neo-Nazis. All of this bringing forth forms of racialized, religious, and political conflict. The US and the world is increasingly moving to the right, extreme right. In short, neoliberal capitalism has been <coughs> democratic and has limited democracy to the extent that democracy has been stolen by capital and the world has been placed in jeopardy. The crisis is registered in South Africa. I don't want to recount the history of South Africa's neoliberalization. This has been documented. But it's important to note that the counter to this analysis has been to blame it on apartheid. That's been the dominant narrative. Well, the shadows of the past are with us, but our short post-apartheid story is also about contingency. It's not about the straight part-dependent line. We do not move from apartheid to neo-apartheid, but from apartheid capitalism to Afro-neoliberal capitalism. The most horrendous features of apartheid capitalism are with us and have been exacerbated. In this context, the post-apartheid order has been about an elite class compromise. 20 years of BEE, which we've heard about. 600 billion, right, Karen? Deracializing the state and creating the conditions for homegrown monopolies to globalize. As a result, democracy <coughs> has been disciplined and undermined by markets, a mediatized public sphere, which has contributed to globalizing South Africa from within. 
The state behaves like a rational market actor embedded in the market, and you have had the corrupting influences of BEE. The consequences of this are a very unequal <coughs> society. And I don't want to rehash those numbers, but when you do look at the Gini coefficient, it has been going up. Uh, income distribution is highly inequitous in society, and it is racialized. Uh, the African majority, and despite deracializing the middle class, South African Africans bear the brunt of this. Children, uh, workers, uh, and the unemployed. So 20 years more of PE in this country will leave behind, we've already left behind vast swaths of this population, will leave behind more people, and it will not work. Thirdly, it's estimated that over 3,000 protest actions happened in this country since 2008 and 2012. Some have been referred to as the rebellion of the poor. This upswing in the cycle of protest and resistance is one index of deepening discontent. However, it's crucial in this regard uh, to also appreciate the authoritarian response of the state. Uh, we've seen this shift from crime prevention and community policing to combating crime. So we've actually seen the subsumption of citizens as criminals in this narrative. The special task forces and units involved in shooting of Andres Tatane, some of these members were also involved in the Marikana massacre. Thirdly, with Marikana, the post-apartheid elite class compromise buttressed by neo-corporatist bargaining is unraveled. We are a new frontier. The failure of trickle-down and the stagnation of wages has been openly challenged. This has been underlined by the platinum strike and the recent NUMSA strike. This opens the way for a radical realignment of class and social forces in South Africa. I'm almost done. A new labor militancy, however, is crucial to challenge capital and its various um, spatial, financial, techno, and other fixes that, has been, that have been imposed on workers over the past 20 years to ensure profit rates are high in this country. By itself, this militancy will not be sufficient unless it translates into a genuine left alignment and project. It is in this context the NUMSA moment is very, very crucial. So African labor came into the post-apartheid order with a proud record of struggle against apartheid capitalism. Since 1973, with the resurgence of black trade unionism, struggles at the shop floor achieved four things. One, the link between class struggle and the struggle against racial oppression. Workers could not help but confront a racialized labor regime. Labor built links with communities and various social forces. Thirdly, a radical shop steward movement steeped in tradition of worker control and participatory democracy came to the fore. Progressive trade unions like Kosatu have been schools of democracy. We shouldn't forget this. And fourthly, developing a strategic capacity to articulate democratic alternatives for society. So we haven't had typical unions in South Africa. In post-apartheid South Africa, labor has lost a lot of ground as it been strategically outsmarted by capital, locked itself into the elite class compromise and has felt the squeeze of restructuring and an externalizing economy. Kosatu today faces the toughest moment in its history in which its autonomy and capacity for independent struggle is under threat. Labor's response to where it is has to be strategic. It is not just about trade unionism, but about the trajectories of post-apartheid order and a, working, and a working class alternative for all of us. More of the same as understood through the much vaunted NDP will not secure a future for South Africa. Capital, black and white, and sections of white South Africa that have benefited have, have to recognize the necessity of radical and transformative change. Sacrifices will have to be made to build a South Africa for all of us. In this context, the NUMSA moment, which represents the potential for left realignment and a project to emerge as a 
counter to capital cannot be understated. The NUMSA moment represents the best option for South Africa to reclaim and renew our democracy. The decisions made by NUMSA, South Africa's largest trade union, over 330,000 members and the most militant, to leave the alliance and to end its support for the ANC, to explore the option of a workers' party and a movement for socialism has to be welcomed. This was, of course, not without its contradictions and challenges. Despite this, you know, it could end up in a strange place. Despite this, if it succeeds and spawns a genuine left alternative, this will be the most defining moment for the maturation of South African democracy. On the other hand, uh, if the NUMSA project fails and maybe ends up as a uh, in a dead end, i.e. the SACP2, uh, this will mean the absolute defeat of the working class. And like Labour and other parts of post-colonial Africa, it would be tamed for a long time to come. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Vishwas. Uh, well, I mean, obviously, that uh, presentation raised some, some critical issues. Uh, the perhaps core democratic question of uh, are our democracies choiceless? Uh, do we have choices? Uh, what is the relationship between political democracy and uh, social inequality? Uh, and then, of course, the crucial question of the role of the labor movement, which uh, you know, we, don't, we don't have this kind of foresight which enables us to, to arrange these things perfectly. But if you were reading the newspaper this morning, there was a, a, a report in there about uh, the formation of a rival metal union to NUMSA, which uh, if it goes ahead, does seem to be, uh, could well be the catalyst uh, which uh, causes the break between NUMSA and Kosaitu and the kind of issues that, uh, that Vishwas was talking about. So certainly the question of where, of, of realignment in the labor movement and, and, and how that is a, uh, going to impact on our democracy in the next few years is, is absolutely crucial. So thank you for that. Uh, finally, um, we have Tessa Dooms' presentation. Um, and uh, I think what she has to, 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 to offer us is, is, is very important. Uh, it, be, it was customary, uh, it probably still is in some circles, but, but fashions are very important in our politics and our debate. It was, it was fashionable, I think, about a few months ago or last year to talk about young people in this country as a ticking time bomb. Uh, we now, you know, things have moved on. We have other ticking time bombs and so on. Uh, but uh, there are still those who feel that young people are a ticking time bomb who are concerned uh, quite appropriately about whether uh, economically but also socially and politically uh, the democracy, which is, is now 20 years old, uh, has enough to offer to, 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 to those South Africans who are themselves 20 years old or or a little bit younger than that and a little bit older than that. Uh, and uh, Tessa Dooms uh, is, uh, a lecturer, is, is, is the only panelist who's a, who's a UJ colleague. She lectures in, in, in sociology here, but that's not the reason we invited her. Uh, the reason we invited her is that there's a very interesting, uh, I think it's fairly new. Yeah. It is, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, I, so that's nice. It's not my ignorance, it is new. Uh, there's a new uh, organization called Youth Lab, uh, which uh, I think is bringing together some, some very interesting young thinkers uh, to explore the issue of youth in this country and, and, and how it impacts uh, on, 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 on society and democracy. Uh, and uh, Tessa, Tessa Dooms is, in fact, the director of Youth Lab. Um, 
and she's going to be talking to us tonight on reimagining success for young South Africans, do aspirations and the available structural pathways meet the needs of young people. Thank you. Um, good evening, everybody. Um, I'm standing in for Zaman Lobo, um, who tell you a few days ago, um, and I'm going to try and channel the awesome of Zama. But if I fail, <laughs> please forgive me. There's I didn't want to introduce you as a substitute, but if you want, <laughs> you're very um, welcome in your own. But just to, to um, say that she's very sorry that she missed this opportunity. Uh, but the Youth Lab is really excited about um, being invited to speak in these kinds of spaces. Uh, Sharon asked me to give you a bit of a background on Youth Lab, so I'll do that really quickly. But we are a youth policy think tank. We've been in existence for about two years. And our core um, function, as, as we've defined it, is to create, create spaces and ways and mechanisms for young people to engage with policy issues in a nonpartisan way. And in a country like ours, where political allegiance is such an important part of everyday life almost, um, we wanted to find ways that young people can feel like, regardless of what their political allegiance are or not, that they can start to see policy, politics, social political issues, express their views on them without feeling the burden of one or the other um, political force um, acting on their, their views on their lives. But I think our, our greater mission um, going forward is to really start to say where is the youth voice in the country gone and how do we start to um, research that and, and get more and more um, not only young people by age, but young people in terms of thought and vision um, starting to engage with policy makers and decision makers. Um, and really the topic of, of, our, of, of the talk is around the same kind of thing. It's about thinking about South Africa through a youth lens and saying what kind of young people um, are, we, are we dealing with in the country, but um, are we responsive to where those young people are at and where they are going, more importantly. Um, and so in thinking about what defines young people, what defines their success, and what defines their future, I thought it's a good place to start to speak about the definition of youth, which is a, it's a prickly one in this country, and we often hear the joke about the ANC Youth League having a monopoly on the youth age of 35. But um, that age bracket, the 14 to 35 age bracket, has been with us for a long, long time. It didn't come along with, with Julius and Floyd. Um, and there are, to my mind, really good reasons um, in terms of understanding young people and their positioning in the country for why we have that very large um, age bracket. And one of the more, most important ones is that if youth is seen and defined as a period of transitioning from childhood into ad adulthood, um, it takes a long time for most young South Africans to actually travel that journey. If we think about the markers of adulthood as being autonomy from the family of origin, as being some, having some level of um, economic um, income and, and success in that economic income, that it's not just something that's happening um, coincidentally, but something that they can strive towards and achieve. Um, if we think about it in terms of um, socially reproducing your life in terms of family, so either cohabitation, marriage, parenthood, um, it does, it's, it's not um, as automatic a process as it is in other parts of the world. So um, if you live in the US, you're going to travel the journey of 
becoming 17, graduating, and then either going into um, a community college or going into a <coughs> university or finding a job. And there's almost an expectation that within the next year or two, you'll be able to move out of home. And even if you don't um, decide to re-establish family, as it were, you'll be able to have a household of your own where you are um, in charge of, of your life and charting the path of your life. For a young South African who is in, living in Soweto right now, when they get their first job, there's a responsibility to first start participating economically in the household that you're in. So the family of origin still has a demand on you, so you can't just begin to chart your own course. Or when you start your education, you are going to take out a loan that once you start your first job, your first, your first responsibility is paying back your loan rather than charting your course. So you then end up with graduates who will take just about any job that they can get um, rather than being able to say, I want to be selective about this so I can chart a career path. But there are a lot of factors that contribute to young people not having that sense of getting to adulthood at a, at a very good place. Um, so if we think about the unemployment statistics in the country, um, it said that 70% of the unemployed are in that youth bracket. What is a worrying part of that is that of that 70%, about 40% of those are people between the ages of 25 to 35. That should scare us. That should really be a problem because the, when we think of youth in transition and youth who should be facing the kind of burden of trying to figure out how do you get from, um, from education into the workplace and into a world, a world where you're able to reproduce your own life, um, you would hope that by the time you're 25, or by the time you're 30, or by the time you're 35, you're not in a position where you're still having to try and chart that course. Um, even more, and that is also the group of people who um, have the largest percentage of time spent out of work if they've been unemployed, if they, they, they're more likely to be unemployed for more than a year. So as much as I, I cringe every time I hear the category, every time I hear that a 35-year-old is still considered youth in the country. It says something about the, the way in which we're responding to young people and the kind of lives we're creating, the structure that they're in, more than it says about them and about their desire to be young for as long as possible. Um, I'll say as a, a funny aside, um, when I raised this issue on a, a radio station once, um, a gentleman called in very, very angry and said, you know, young people complain too much in this country. What they need to do is they need to wait their turn. We were in the struggle. We didn't get our youth. Now that we are in, in democracy, it's time for us to eat our youth. <laughs> and I, I, I paused. <laughs> and my only response to him was, but while you're eating your youth now, you're actually eating my youth. I'm not eating it. <laughs> and it, 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 as, as strange as that conversation was, it said to me something about the fact that we don't take seriously the need to address not just creating opportunities for young people, but creating opportunities that take them somewhere. So we're telling young people, wait your turn, or we're telling young people, work harder, or we're telling young people, do more. But we're not telling young people that here's the way, the path that you can follow to get where you need to go. We're actually blocking those paths rather than creating them. So I did say um, we have opportunities. 
So when I was thinking about what the major differences are between a young person in 94 versus a young person now, or 94 or before now, um, there are some obvious differences in the kind of world a young person in 94 is inhabiting versus a young person now. Um, some of them that we need to be thinking about when we think about how to start assisting young people or start creating a world that is youth friendly. Um, in 94, you didn't have the high levels of urbanization that you have right now. We didn't have an HIV crisis um, and other kinds of health crises that are starting to develop in the light of um, service delivery issues. Um, we had young people who were more politically active than many young people are now. And there was also a climate of hope, that there was a narrative of hope that young people fed into. And right now that narrative doesn't really exist. There isn't really a narrative of, of hope and forward thinking. Um, as we said earlier, young people have, the narrative around young people has been either that they're taking time bomb or they're the biggest problem. But there hasn't been a clear narrative of hope. Um, but one of the things that struck me the most when I thought about it is that I was 10 when it was 94. And I remember knowing that my father earned 2,000 rand a month and thinking that was a lot. I remember being told that my parents were paying off um, a bond of 17,000 rand. I remember um, knowing that my parents were seen as community pillars and they were seen as you know, these great people in their community that they had this three-bedroom home, they had these children, and that they had a very clear plan to get us through education. And those things started to build up my view of what success for my life would look like. When I think about that now, uh, another one, one of those key things was my parents didn't believe in credit cards or debt or clothing accounts. If I had stuck to that version of success, <coughs> I would be a much more successful person right now. That, that the, the, the vision of what it meant to be successful and have a successful life was a much more simple and much more attainable vision. Now, it was, <coughs> it's definitely based on a terrible history. Um, the apartheid government did a lot of things that, that made it that every person in this country knew what road they would follow and what steps they were to get there. And for the black child, there was a road to follow and, and there were barriers that were implicit. But what it did is it made, you made, it made sure that you knew where you were going. And I thought, in, now that I'm charting a new course with new aspirations, I actually don't know how to get there. I knew how to get to the version of success that I knew of in 94, but I don't know how to get to the apartment in Santon that cost 1.1 million, the bends, the high paying job, and the entrepreneurial company that I'm supposed to own if I'm going to be the epitome of black success in the country. Now that's for me, somebody who's gone through um, who's, who's had, a, had privilege. From the point that I entered university, my life became one of increased privilege. What does that feel like when you're sitting in a rural area in KZN? And the picture of black success um, for you as a young person is something that seems so far away. 
and the opportunities. Everyone tells you there are millions of opportunities in this country for young people. There are bursaries, there's funding, there's this. But those opportunities are also remote. So if I wanted to even be part of an internship program, as a young person, my, the only thing I have is the newspaper, literally. There are very few things that create an ecosystem that young people can start to go into and plot their way through and try and make up this life, whatever vision of that life is that they, they want for themselves and a version of success in their lives. And so, how much time do I have? Um, 10 minutes. Okay. So, in thinking about that, I, because they, they, there's a difference between opportunities and pathways, and that, that was, for me, the strongest point that I wanted to make in the argument that um, pathways are about having multiple points that can get you somewhere. If you looked at the map, um, the beauty of maps is even if your destination is Cape Town from Joburg, there are multiple milestones along the way that give you what the route is. And so um, I've thought of four categories of pathways that we could start to think about for young people that may start to create for them an environment that can help them um, self-actualize. Um, and the first is democratic pathways. And so we must start to think about in this country ways in which young people can start to know policy, know what the major issues are without having to go to News 24, um, and start to become familiar with how it is that their government works. So um, we had a, a discussion with young people, and a, a guy came to us afterwards, and he said, there's a bottle in my road, and I have no clue even who fixes that. So from the point of, so I mean, it's not even him saying he doesn't know what the national development plan is, or he doesn't understand the taxes. He just doesn't know where to start when there's a pothole in his road. We don't have young people who understand the workings of, of their government and the workings of their democracy. And I think we need to, to start thinking through how we, how we do that. Um, young people who are willing to engage with these issues and who are willing to form formations and create ways in which they can start to learn from each other and learn from other people. So um, you won't have many, many young people who will attend a briefing about a, a new bill or who will even read about it. Um, so we need to start creating a culture where young people start to engage more and start to learn more. Um, another thing that young people should be doing in terms of democratic process is certainly getting more involved in politics and government. Um, the amount of young people who I know who would never ever in their lives go work for government, even though they're skilled and talented, is just too many to count. And we can't continue that culture. If um, every, every young person says, I don't want to be in government, I would rather be somewhere else, then we're going to end up with people being in government that we're going to be disapproving of all the time. That's happened already. <laughs> True, but we can continue that trend for a long time to come if a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old is already saying that before they enter the workplace. Um, and then also just one of the things I've, I found working with Youth Lab has been the sense that young people don't and I mean, active, active citizenship is a buzzword, and I don't want to use it. 
but don't have a sense of themselves as citizens who are empowered to act, um, just as individuals. So there isn't the sense that I'm a citizen, this is what being a citizen means, these are the rights I have, this is what I'm able to do within the system. Um, so even small things like that become ways to start creating um, a vehicle for young people to think differently and to feel like they're empowered to achieve. Um, the other is economic pathways for young people. And I mean, we, we could yeah, talk about a lot of these. But um, in, my, in my younger days, uh, <laughs> I had the opportunity to work at, the, at an Mswombo Youth Fund. Um, they used to call them youth advisory centers, as it were. And those centers for me were a really, really great idea. And I know that they've now been subsumed into the NYDA, and that's become its own problem trial. But what those centers <coughs> were, were there, there were opportunities for young people to do more than just um, get, get a job or get a bursary. They were there to learn about what the different options are for them. They were there as um, job placement centers if, if they were run well. Um, they were there as um, centers that could um, give young people just basic um, information about how to prepare yourself for a job interview, those kinds of things. And they seemed trivial until I was working there and realized how important those are. So it's, it's great to have learnerships and internships and, and those kinds of things as, as economic vehicles. But just knowledge centers um, as economic vehicles are, are important. Um, financial literacy. Um, a lot of young people only after three or four years of trying to manage their own funds realized that they didn't know how banking systems work and that's why they didn't account for the charges that would be um, on them. Um, or they didn't think about um, the fact that they needed to build up a credit, credit record and what the implications are of getting three or four different um, credit accounts to build up a credit record, but then not being able to pay back um, the main loan you actually wanted. So there's just a lack of financial literacy and we could build that up and we could um, develop that. Um, and then one that we're actively trying to get involved with now is entrepreneurial and innovation education. So again, there are a lot of incubators that are trying to help young people once they've decided to write up a business plan. But there's very little education about entrepreneurship itself. Um, there's very little education about innovation, what it means, what it is, how do you do it, how do you think through these things, what are the implications long term, how do you become entrepreneurial. So all we ask young people when they say, I want to start a business is, where's your business plan? Where's your business model? But we don't know whether or not they know anything about business and what it takes to run one. So that just becomes, they're small and basic things, but I think they're things that start to create um, ways out. Um, and then the final thing um, that I'll say is, is about structural pathways, um, or sorry, infrastructural pathways. So um, the city of Tswane has started a Wi-Fi project, um, and they're now calling themselves the e-capital of the country. Um, but the importance of, of Wi-Fi and the importance of access. Um, a, young, a young person who's working in our center now, he's been trying to find a job for a very long time, and he says his greatest barrier has been um, just trying to find an internet cafe in Soweto that works, that is operational when he needs it to be, or downloading a document that he needs um, when he needs it. So 
they're small things, but if we paid attention and we put them together and we wove them into a tapestry, they become more than just um, you know, little initiatives. They become a, a web, a ecosystem that people can actually um, put into. Do I have a minute? Yeah, you have, okay. um, if you want to know, you have two. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have to end this off by um, putting on my sociological hat for a minute um, and saying that Weber's, Weber's understanding of class has always been, for me, one of my favorite ways of thinking about class. Because in, it doesn't leave the understanding of class and upward social mobility at the point of just economy and where you are in terms of the chains of economic production. But it includes two other things that I think are important. Um, the one is status, and the other one is um, and the network of power that you have around you. Um, if you remember about two years ago, there was a phenomenon called Escotana. Escotana was, it was the flavor of the month. Everybody was fascinated by these young people who were pouring out and out because this was some kind of um, statement. But they are important because they tell us something about what, but what young people, are, where they are at. They say something about the need for us to recognize the aspirations of young people. They were wearing those clothes, tearing, tearing up those banknotes, burning the sneakers, because they were saying, this is not only what we aspire to, it's what we can be right now. That's the message of the Skodani every time he's burning a hundred damn note. And that's about status. That's about what society values. If society valued something different, Scotanas would be expressing themselves in different ways. But they found out that what is valued is the clothes that they wear, the automobile they throw out, and the whiskey that they consume. If our status measures were different, our young people would respond differently. And in terms of power and party, those young people get together and they say, we're going to affirm each other. We're going to have shared interests around this issue. If we replaced that with another issue, if we replaced it with their political will, if we replaced it with something else, with their economic activity, they would be able to galvanize around that and come up with innovative ways to express that too. So there's more at stake than just whether you get a job or not. It's about how we define status or how we define achievement and affirm it. And it's about how we put young people together so that they see their interests and they can work towards it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Tessa. Look, I, I mean, the, the, the first comment I, I, I would make is that if you're aiming for the epitome of black success, as you described, at the University of Johannesburg and research organizations, not the way to go. <laughs> but uh, look, thanks very much. I think that there were some very important commonalities between some of the issues you were raising, some of the issues Colella was raising, like the question of looking beyond a purely uh, economic and, 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 and technical approach to issues to to issues of choice, to issues of politics, uh, to, 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 to people's right to information and, 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 and people's right to participate. I think the issue you raised about values is, is something which uh, some of us have been writing about and which I, I, I think is a, is a very serious challenge in the society, the extent to which the values you describe uh, are 
uh, affecting the way in which people see themselves and the rest of society. Uh, and I guess the only other comment I'd make about your presentation is, is, is how much of those points that you make uh, apply only to young people uh, and how much of them apply to the society as a whole. But uh, in any event, uh, we now have time for discussion, questions, etc. So please feel free to raise any issue you want to raise. Uh, if you want to be uh, responded to by name by any of the panelists, you better tell us what your name is. If you want to remain anonymous, that's also okay. And we can respond to each other as well. And you can respond to each other. I, I, I anticipated that. I could see you taking notes and... Uh, I'm sure you will want to respond to each other, but um, is there anybody from the floor who wants to? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I'm, I've got you. Yeah, there are several people. Yeah, at the back. Yeah, you've got the floor. You're first up. Thank you. My name is Jonathan Williams. I essentially thought that, I'm sorry, I couldn't get the the last speaker's surname, so I'm D-O-O-M-S. And um, I thought, and I'm sorry that I missed Professor Mankus, on the two inputs that I've had before, I thought her input was a very, very good response to the two inputs that had come before. Um, I could lend my views to a lot what Dr. Sadka raised, but it was a little bit of an old hat, in a sense. And unfortunately, I, I could not understand what Ms. Payton had raised. The repost is that there are choices. And what seems to stop us making those choices is the, the issue of values. But more than that is, is the apartheid hangover in the issue of self-hate. That we do not trust ourselves enough to invest in ourselves. Hence, therefore, a concept like BEE tries to, uh, which is a compromise matter at any rate, tries to do redistribution, which it should never do. And um, in fact, BEE makes more white business people richer than black business persons or that we, we get locked into a matter thinking that government or the state or government and political parties is our only way for liberation in a post-apartheid state. Like we don't tackle the market, we don't tackle business. We, 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 we don't even support government when it tackles business, like Walmart. And we don't tackle the overall hegemony of the, of the media, which puts forward the same agenda we are complaining about. And I thought that, that, that the last speaker raised the issues of young people, and as you quite point out, that it is an issue, if the matters raised, the obstacles and the challenges and young people don't read and don't know what policy, it's true for entire, our entire society, and not just young people. And it is true for areas like academia, like the media, like the talking heads, like the experts as well. And what she had raised, and what they are looking at, and what could be done, is how do you sort of help so that you don't need to have need to have that expense of health. How do you sort out of education that you can have lifelong learning within a social basis? And how do you do that by forcing the market, by forcing business to change? Or do you just do that by rearranging who your political leaders are? So much so that we can have somebody says, basically, here's the new boss, same like the old boss. 
you know, the one elite replaced the other elite. Like the other, like the current elite was the head of a, an illegitimate state, of an apartheid state. So I thought that in real terms, that the debunking of some of the, the, the massive statements made yeah, was really done quite well by the last speaker. It showed that people are going to be talking about these issues like they're just party political, political issues as opposed to talking about the private sector and how do we change the compromises, we have, economic compromises we're forced to make and how do we do that when we have such an erosion of values? Then it'll, and, and that would be the correct discussion, not this old hat. And I heard all that in real terms. I could pick up the Star newspaper and read that tomorrow. It would be the same things that I read, read today. It is, it, it, it is, it is disappointing. <coughs> okay, next to you. Yeah. No, no, I wasn't coming to you. Sorry, yes? Yeah, please. Thank you very much. My name is Ivar Masih. I'm the former president of this institution. Uh, of, the, of the SRC or the entire institution? I depend on how to conceptualize it. I think I would, I would like to, the, on the second speaker, um, I, I would like to agree, especially when he speaks about the issue of the I mean, no matter how we can, we can move it to a broader PEE or even broader PEE, but the fact of the matter is that it's what he was talking about when he speaks about it. Uh, it deracialize only the top. It actually benefits only the few. Because we tend to forget, as people of South Africa, that what is our problem? Our problem is the inequality. It's actually the triple challenges. So now to address the triple challenges, you cannot create few elites to be there. You are not dealing with the problem at, at all. Uh, and actually, I differ with her on the issue of uh, radical economic transformation. I mean, what is radical? If you are, you are saying that we want a radical, if you are telling me that we want a radical, economic transformation, then these are the issues that we need to, to consider. The issue of the bank that is owned by the government, the issue of nationalization of the key sectors of the economy. Now, that's radical. Isn't it that we want a radical shift? A radical shift, obviously, it, will, it won't be good as we look at it, but it's the radical means taking some of the risk to make, to see if the market is working. And on the issue of, of, of corruption, I mean, it, this has always been my view to say that uh, it depends on actually who has administration powers. Because most of the time that even young people now, I'm leading the student movement, young people want to get closer to part, their participation into politics or their participation into to the political space is actually informed by being close to resources. Now, these people go to the extent they participate because they want to be close to resources and they come into those positions of distributing the resources. And when they are in that position of distributing the resources, 
it comes to that situation where she spoke about to say that people who are leading is people that we don't like because of the participation. And there's a lack of participation is strong. And uh, I'd like to agree the third speaker about the issue of Afro neoliberalism, capitalism that is created in, 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 in Africa. And it actually, and I, I would like to agree again about the issue of which maybe some community would be able to differ on the issue of NUMSA, on how they've taken their stand to withdraw themselves from the, the, the party and be able to form a, a union that actually, according to them, it will represent the views of, of, of the workers. It's simply because we uh, would, would agree that the unionization of South Africa has assisted a lot, like they, they've said to say, actually they've been able to deal with the issue of, of racial contradiction within the flaws and uh, the issue of the participation of the worker. Because before 94, uh, the participation into national discourse, it was difficult. But now the workers, we see them now <coughs> participating more in the democratic South Africa, of the participating in the, in the democracy. But there are also few issues that actually, uh, that are not addressed and that, see, that actually make us to see this breakaway. For example, uh, in these 3,000 strikes in the past that have happened, I think 2,000 of them were about the wage increase. I don't know, I, I don't really say it, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just analyzing <laughs> to say that it's about the wage increase, the issue of labor brokers, and the other issues that are there. So now you see such, such situation that's happening. If actually the government can be able to deal, cannot be able to deal with these issues, with the wage, the labor brokers, and the other issues, many other issues that they are raising, then we will see the more breakaway of such situation. And I think if it's for, if it's for them, it's for their benefit if the a, a union want to break away because they feel that actually these people they don't actually address our issues uh, uh, in there. Uh, on the last week actually, I want Sorry, to I hear more. I don't want to cramp your start, but there are a lot of people, so could you come to a conclusion? Yeah, uh, on the last, on the last speaker, because now when she introduced herself, she spoke about spoke about being, I think, ten of of the young people. So now I thought maybe you would also touch on the issue of gender transformation, because I mean this is this is one of the issues that actually it's it's, it's, it's hindering most of the progress that actually you, you spoke about many issues. I mean you spoke about. Uh, you gave an example about Soweto. This is the same Soweto whereby uh, uh, young people were taking the gay lesbians uh, to say that they are not welcoming to particular. This is the same Soweto whereby when I'm here as a son and there's a daughter in one family, they will expect, I mean it doesn't, uh, they will expect based on the issue of, of, of gender, they will expect me to go and look for a job first before my sister to get a job first before my sister, if we all are unemployed and sitting. And those are the issues. And I wanted to hear your view, especially on how to conceptualize it in terms of the gender transformation within the youth uh, uh, on what's happening. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay. 
Uh, part of my problem here is that I, I recognize half the audience. I know half of you, and I don't know the other half, so I'm, I'm, I'm not choosing names because I know what he's doing. So the next person is, is the anonymous gentleman over there who may or may not work in, 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 the, in the house next door to me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 Just going to raise two points. The first point is regarding Kosatu and the norms of moment, right? It is very sad that Kosatu has been weakened, right? Because it was built by the workers through struggles and sacrifices. But at the same time, I think that is positive because now there are other possibilities which are emerging, for instance, Nusa or, you know, uh, workers' struggles in uh, Margan, right? And uh, I think, for, for me, the proletariat is also creative. It's, it's uh, finding its uh, own ways and uh, mechanisms of, 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 of resolving problems of bureaucratization within these unions, right? So I think that, that is uh, positive. But I also think that what is going to be important is also how these other uh, counter movements are, are conducting the, the, themselves in terms of actual you know, struggles, right? And maybe there's a, there's a possibility of the you know, coming to, together of labor and, and uh, uh, movements in the, in, in the, in the, in the cities and uh, any other uh, uh, spaces of, of, of resistance, right? So that's my first point. My, my second point is on the youth, right? Now, you see, we always say that, you know, the young people are not being uh, creative. They don't know where to go for, for, for opportunities and, you know, all, the, all that kind of stuff. But I think the, the reality is that South Africa places the industrialization. So in other words, we've got this very structural crisis of unemployment, right? I mean, let me give an example. ISCO, which is now called Metal, which has got branches in the Bell Park, Newcastle, you know, had about 50,000 workers in 1989, right? Now, they only have about, say, 10,000 workers. And you, you can already see you know, that you know, there's, a, there's a drastic decline like in employment. ESCOM and, and, and all these other, other, other prospectors are also you know, you're facing that you know, no problem, right? Now, in other words, yeah, young people, they, they, they get out of these institutions, but then again, there are no jobs, right? There are those one or two who would be able to, to get you know, the job, but I think we have to resolve that you know, structural problem of, of the of economy, and if we can't then, you know, begin to you know, blame them, like, you know, we have to be creative, you have to be an entrepreneur. When, when there is this new structural economic crisis, right? And of course, our, our education system fails them. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a two-tier uh, 
education system is one for the rich or the, the middle classes, which is the black and, 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 and white, and then the one for the you know, masses, which is not working, which is a dysfunction. Okay, sorry, there was, um, all right, um, the person there who, who's, whose master's degree I know nothing about, okay. <laughs> 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 How many master's degrees? Stand up and ask oh, me, <laughs> I have nothing to do with your doctorate, I was involved with your master's, okay. <laughs> And I had a question for Dr. Tualit Koyela, and just a comment for yes, the third speaker for today. Vish. Vish. Vish is easiest. Vish, right. Um, Dr. Koyela, I just wanted to trick your, your, your mind around the issue of what do you think then the DA's message around you know, technical development, and especially its traction in different municipalities, one, Eastern Cape, and the other one in the city of Tuana. I mean, that's the type of message that I'm talking about. It's the type of message that's gaining traction on the ground. So I just wanted to get what your thoughts are around that in terms of. And what's about that message? What's the message? The 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 the, the message around good governance, the message around um, prudent spending of yeah. the fiscals and so forth. Um, proper service delivery. I mean, you get the point that I'm trying to make. The, the comment I wanted to make was, the gentleman behind me alluded to it at one point. I, perhaps it would be a bit provocative, but to be honest, how, how is, is it really fair to say that 1994 and the transition there after was an impact? I mean, to a lot of people in the ANC, they've been talking about, you know, we're trying to, there was conflict happening, there was a lot of violence, and there were a lot of maneuvers by people who were, by national party hacks and so forth. I, I, I don't quite think that there's an adequate and sufficient observation of what transpired during those negotiations and then the result thereof. I mean, yeah, there are a lot of problems post-1994, but would you say that's an adequate or sufficient observation of what transpired there? Thank you. I think maybe, um, okay, my name is Pilar I'm waiting for South African Active Civil Society Organization. I'm actually the president of the organization. I would believe that when we are here, we are here to find a solution for the problems that we have in South Africa. One of them is the democracy that is not really working. Now, when we take it to a microscopic observation, then we realize that in every society, especially in our society, we find that the conflict is actually over the, you know, the resources between the rich and the poor. It's, it's nothing else, but it's a conflict between, you know, I mean, for resources between the rich and the poor. And uh, if we would look at um, the growth of the middle class from um, uh, 2005 to 2007, you find that the black middle class called them, them, you know, the black diamonds. They have grown, you know, I mean, uh, to you know, by almost 38 percent, and when you look at the uh, the majority of the people at that time, there has been a decline. You know what I'm saying in their buying power. 
when the middle class has been going up, then this tells us that the majority of our people are becoming poorer and poorer and poorer, and the gap between the rich and the, and the poor is, you know, is becoming bigger and bigger. So, when you talk about the system in which we live in now, being, you know, I mean, over the resources, it's just the system controlled by the few. There's no question about that. It's controlled by the few, the interest of the few, not for the majority of the people. Now, today, do we find anything wrong, probably, with the system, or probably, or what is happening, you know, I mean, in, in that system? Because, you know, every system, you know, especially the capitalist system, has got the contradictions that somehow grow in it and uh, explode, you know, somewhere to destroy that particular system. And that is one of them. And when people are becoming poorer and poorer and poorer, one way or another, somewhere and somehow, they will definitely, I mean, uh, there will be, you know, explosions in there. Then do we say the, um, the, the service delivery process, is it because of, you know, the um, city development or whatever. I don't understand how do we relate to that. Or do we see that as the contradictions that are exploding within the capital system that is unable and that has got no capacity to serve the needs of the people that concerns itself with the buying power, the ability of people to buy, you know, I mean, the buying power of the people. I think that's one of, of my problems. And other thing that we have to remember is that Every system and any system that serves the interests of the rich does not only fail to protect the poor, but it actually makes it possible that the poor, the rich, must exploit you know, I mean, the, uh, the poor. The other thing is that even the education system that we have, there's no neutral you know, education system. Every, you know, I mean, uh, education in any society, it has got, you know, integrates people into conformity to the logics of that particular system. That is why it becomes difficult, even our academics, to understand the problems of the very same, whether the problems are, you know, are, are really from the system or what, because they are, they are so much conformed to that particular, to the logics of that particular system, that they reason like that that system. They don't see anything wrong in that particular system. And the evidence is that we are trying to reform the system. So can we reform the system? It's the same, you know, I mean, in conclusion. When you take a capitalist system, it's not different from the, you know, I mean, praise and, and the predators. And now, you want to say that the, the, the praise can get a solution from the, from the predators. It never happens. And same thing with the education itself. If the predators are going to, you know, design whatever syllabus, whatever education for the praise, it will be that the praise must be eaten. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, yes. Yeah. And then I have seen you. Don't worry. It's it's you, you and then you, and then I think we'll go go back to the panel. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I've I've seen both of you at the back. Don't worry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you, Chair. Uh, I'm going to. Uh, I thought it was uh, for questions if you've got the speakers yet. Uh, my name is Willie Bilson, and I'm here from the Institution of uh, the Advancement Division. Um, quick, I'm uh, not going to make the statements of Torella. I want to, if you'll allow me to put your political analyst hat on from the city. It's quite interesting to hear the, uh, the uh, issue that you did your, your study, city planning. 
uh, what I wanted to just uh, check with you, with your political head, is uh, the Auditor General was here last night at Council Chambers, and a very gloomy picture. Out of the 350-odd municipalities, only 30 had unqualified audits. Out of the 30, 12 from Western Cape, 11 from uh, KZN, and the rest scattered abroad. In fact, Gauteng had three, um, uh, three unqualified audits. So I just wanted to check with you, uh, uh, the DA would, all, would obviously be rolling, would be rejoicing, because those 12 municipalities is in the Western Cape. Uh, what is your, your sense? And uh, the, the campaign for 2016 has started now. Obviously, they'll, they'll run uh, with that. And Carol, to you, a very simple one. Uh, on the BE, I agree with you that uh, BLE has uh, benefited a few and this benefited the majority. So BE has, and now that we have, uh, have seen the reality, I just wanted to check, you mentioned, I think two quotation was from, if I can call it whiteies. No, one whitey, one, one blackie. Oh, one, one, one whitey, one blackie, okay. I had a question I didn't hear that I wanted to ask what the, what the, the, the Blackie would have, would have said. But uh, anyway, okay. you've, you've, you've <laughs> then answered my question. And the last one, on the Nunsa moment, do you see, uh, Satar, uh, uh, the Socialist Party, do you see them actually uh, in the next elections? I'm not sure about local uh, elections, 2016, maybe that's too close. Do you see them uh, converting? Because you say we must actually accept and kind of support the, the NUSA moment. You see a party coming out from that and uh, the implications of that in the election. Thank you. Okay, first the man with the cap and then the person next to him. Yeah, go for it. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> Is that why you had your hand up for 15 minutes? <laughs> uh, I just wanted to say, um, I wanted to go to the podium, but oh. the <laughs> yeah. I wanted to say that I think uh, South Africa in general uh, was suffering from a world of two extremes. Because if you hear all the presentations, there are those, like uh, if uh, Dr. Sarka said, there are those who seemingly have benefited out of the current system as it stands, and they are hell-bent to defend it no matter what. Even if they see that actually here we are heading towards a brick wall, they will try and say, no, but it might be the city council, it might, it might be something else. Instead of actually confronting the system and saying, Congress, we have a problem. But equally, on the same statement, even based on the, on the presentation of Kumbhazak, honestly, I think uh, we, the, we can't then say there's everything wrong in the system. Or we can't say that there's everything wrong, everything wrong with what is currently happening in South Africa based on, on, on history and everything else to understand that I would not want to go back into this and try and, and say about yes. But what I would like to say is, is this, especially to all the, our presenters, is that where we are, currently we are, yes, we have faults there and there, but I think that we are doing very well in terms of 
uh, development in terms of going forward. Because the reality is this, Dr. Sack. Uh, like Fidel Castro said, there are only two ways to collapse this thing. Is it not through the barrel of the gun or through economic means? And if you are going to go through the, the, the barrel of the gun, they are going to deal with you. You will be annihilated. You don't have enough the only option we have for us to better the lives of our people is to try and maneuver and outsmart uh, this imperialist economically. <laughs> and I think that with, with the current development uh, of international uh, political landscape, like you said, I think it honestly favors Africa as a whole. In the next in the next hundred years or so. It favors Africa. Where we are right now, Africa would be basically be the kingmaker in terms of uh, global capitalism. And whichever way we swing, it would then mean that we are swinging the way that would favor us as Africa. So I think with the development of BRICS and the BRICS Bank, I'm not advocating for anyone, but I'm just saying that. <laughs> With the development of this BRICS uh, uh, and the BRICS Bank, we are basically heading in the right direction. We have a choice. We have a choice. And that's all I'm saying. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, okay, you are the last speaker. Okay. From the floor. Oh, yeah. Before, uh, my name is Tugulu Mashi. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks,
they just want to do something. <laughs> you know, they, they are just sitting at home, they wake up in the morning, they don't know what to do, and they feel like doing something. Uh, it's just <laughs> in the street, they were striking for electricity because there was an electricity outage. It's a, it's a correct cause, but they were drinking, and one of the, one of the young people, people said, no, the beer is very hot. Because there's no electricity. Young people, what they want, just like any other young person, is an opportunity uh, to do anything. Uh, young people think this, with the EFF, with ANC, they think it's really interesting. They are feeling it. You know, they, they don't want to be quiet when we talk about Judas, they want to have an opinion. And I feel young people want to do something in the society. What they want is, uh, is an opportunity to do so. And my last comment to you, from a Marxist perspective, and I think uh, Dr. Mike might have a input in is that a capitalist economy would always, and all the time, has a reserve labor of unemployed young people. I think, I think that is true in the Sarabic economy. Afro-Sarabic, we can count out a lot of graduates that are unemployed. I have appreciated the fact that I'm soon to going to be an unemployed graduate. I, I've accepted. Uh, and we've said inside of Estasco that the, 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 the economy that needs skilled uh, personnel, we don't have enough. It's, it's nonsense. We have enough skilled young people in the country, but capitalism and the capitalist economy in South Africa wants to have a reserve labor. Just in any case, better workers want to strike. We have a uh, year the rest of the that are in the that are ready for any other thing. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I just, before I go to the panelists, I just want to make the point that it is not the view of the Center for the Study of Democracy that only male persons are capable of asking questions, but that's, that's who put their hands up. So hopefully we can change that by the next session. Uh, what I'm going to do is obviously now ask uh, all the panelists to respond both to points made by the floor and to those made by other panelists. I'm not going to put a time limit on it except to say that uh, the consequence of going on too long is that you'll probably lose your audience. So <laughs> I think that's a, a way of disciplining yourself. So let's start with Olala and, and, and go. There's so many of them. Uh, well, let, let, me, let, me, let me start by saying that I, I want to discourage um, a way of thinking in terms of systems. Uh, you know, I, 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 I grew up in the struggle, talking about the system and, and fighting the system, and um, and, um, and, I, and I and I and I really honestly ask um, whether, in fact, um, given the passage of time, whether the concepts that we've inherited are as valid now as they were 50 years ago or 30 years ago just the analytic concepts. If they are, then I'd be very worried. Um, uh, it, would, it would basically mean that really the society hasn't, hasn't evolved. Um, so I'm really interested in, um, in perhaps more like Weber, sort of in, 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 in less of a, of a, of a total uh, working out of, of the picture, uh, of presenting a, a particular vision um, that, that comports to a particular system. 
because you know you can have you can have all the socialist system if you if you I mean you like, but you're still going to be confronted with some of these questions that have to do with how you run your schools, where your teachers going to come from, um, and I don't know if nationalisation or, or or a socialist system or a, a worker system is going to address those issues. Um, so I'm more interested. <coughs> in the granularity, if you like, of, 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 of society. Um, in other words, how, 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 is, how is a society organically um, um, reshaping itself? And are we able to respond to that? Which is why I think I'm really interested in these issues of local democracy. Um, it is not to say that the issues of inequality uh, and racism and, 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 and all of those are not important. I think they are important, but I'm wary of using um, one analytic sort of total system to try and answer all of those questions. Um, the, the, the only thing I can try and answer with some specificity, well, there are two things I can, I can speak to with some specificity. Um, one is I'm really, really, really worried about what is happening in the black community in terms of what I really think is a, is a social breakdown. And it's a social break, break, breakdown of calamitous proportions. And I say this, uh, you know, some people say I'm, I'm, I'm hyperbolic or, or, or dramatic. Um, and, and, I, and, and I think it has something to do with living in Cape Town. Um, I see this, I mean, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the social situation in, 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 in the black communities in Cape Town. And I don't think any socialist or economistic answer is going to speak to those challenges <coughs> uh, about the, the, the sociology. Um, and, and I think that BEE has actually done much to disfigure the black community. And, 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 and you see, there is one thing about, about how business in the white community evolved um, uh, over time, whether you know, supported by, by apartheid or not. It was within a, a certain framework of institutions, schools that were working, religious institutions that were the political systems, all kinds of things. But what has happened in the black community is that there's been this creation of BEE as an aspirational project in, a, in, a, in an institutional vacuum. And what it has done is it has led to, to the things that you were describing about some of these perverse uh, behaviors among our youth, uh, whether it's Oskotane, um, but the, the, the complete uh, worship of money. Um, I forgot not even city press about this. Um, so buy city press on Sunday. <laughs> the, the complete worship of money, the booze, the ritualized mass consumption of alcohol on weekends, the, 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 the poor quality of the radio stations, the fake English and Americanism. <laughs> and, 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 and the superficiality right, of 
what these radio announcers and, and, and people are talking about. The, 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 you know, the idea that skin lightness uh, are fashion and they make us attractive. All of those things speak to, <coughs> to a fundamental, fundamental problem, sociological problem, uh, that, that I think that we need to deal with. And, and I think that um, we, we can address that as, a, as, as something that is um, tractable. Um, I know how to intervene in that. I don't know how to intervene in, in running mines um, and, and, and all of that. I do think that the, 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 the issue of that you were asking about the DA and, and why this message is gaining traction or whether this message is gaining traction has everything to do with the fact that we are not living in pre-1994. We are living in, in, in cities where people with multiple aspirations, black people, who are sitting in suburbs, who are like, ha, huh, you know what? I want good services. I'm going to vote for the DA. It doesn't matter if you give me the nationalist um, speech, right? So what you are having now, the cities are becoming much more unreliable politically, right? And that is why the DA is doing as well as it do. But the DA will do as well as Malema will do. Because as part of this plurality, there are people in the cities who are, who, for, who, for whom he, has, he, has, he makes a lot of sense. So, so it seems to me that going forward, what we have to be analytically asking questions ourselves, what is it that is emerging? Instead of coming with like, this is the solution. What is emerging in South Africa? What is the social formation that is confronting South Africa? And how do we deal in practical terms with it? Now, I'm offering cities as a way you can do it. Somebody else can offer the workplace as a way you do it. And somebody can offer the educational space as a way you, 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 you do that. But, but, but I, 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 I think that would be, would be much better. And, and if you want to, pro, to, to project into the future, I think that the ANC is going to find it increasingly difficult in the cities. Um, and, and, you know, and, 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 and in fact, it is not clear to me, I mean, that's the other point I really want to make, it is not clear to me that political parties are that important. And so, because I ask myself, okay, what do political parties actually do? You know, um, they write laws, um, but, you know, it, but, 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 and those laws, I'm sure, are important. But it seems to me that we have to, we have to, we have to ask ourselves questions about, because, you know, I, I, I use an example like AfriForum. Something like AfriForum is a very effective organization, whether you like it or not. Because AfriForum is able to take an issue, a tractable issue, and take it to court, and take it to the constitutional court and win it. It doesn't matter if you've won the majority in parliament. If you don't have the intellectual and policy wherewithal as black people, you can win the elections forever. You can have your socialist systems forever. But at the end of the day, the granularity of the society is going to be out of your hands. So spare me your ideological uh, stuff and, and, and let us, as, as black people in particular, deal with the question of the people of Kukuletu 
have problems with their schools. They've got problems with sanitation. Yes, they are connected to capitalism and all of that, but we've got to find ways, I think, to, 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 to be able to respond to those challenges organically as they emerge, whether or not ultimately we'll, we'll find a socialist nirvana or not. Um, well, as Stephen said at the start, I do come from a different world and live in a different world to all of you. And um, I am absolutely stunned by the vast difference, actually, between our worlds. And the fact that the gentleman at the back there said he couldn't understand a word of what I was saying sort of brought it home to me as well. Um, but I, want to, I really want to make the same point, actually, as Tuolela, um, but not as nicely and intellectually, but just to say that um, it's amazing to me that, that Marxist-Leninism is still um, such a overwhelming and dominant frame of reference amongst, amongst young um, university students. I mean, I was a Marxist-Leninist myself um, one day, but I don't think that Marxist-Leninism um, lives in the real world. So while you're busy being an unemployed graduate, if that's where you think you're headed, the other guys are out there making money. And that's why I chose the topic of BEE, because I do think that you can sit and debate Marxist-Leninism and have ideological debates for as long as you want to. But actually, our society is changing, and it's changing in a very fundamental way. And I wasn't wanting to make a value judgment about whether BEE is good or bad. I was just saying, you need the society, we need a, a process of change needs to happen. From any process of change, you get good and bad um, results. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's generally my, my sort of observation from, from what came out. Um, I just wanted to add something on, on the NUMSA moment, because um, <coughs> I think when you take the NUMSA moment and um, the potential for uh, a new beginning um, and you take what people have been saying about values and Skotani and um, all of those sorts of things and the, the values that BEE and all of our, our new society has made so um, aspirant, people aspire to so, so much. Um, I don't know whether the NUMSA moment stands a chance in that kind of context. And the, and the response of the left is always to say, oh, well, we'll have um, political education. But I don't know whether political education um, can uh, actually come up against and, 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 and win against the kind of values that we, we see. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I just got back from a conference of 6,000 sociologists from different parts of the world. It was in Japan, and the big theme was inequality. And what was striking was that everybody, whether you're Weberian, Marxist, whatever, was talking about the system, and how the system is in crisis, and how it's engendering deeper and deeper social division in our society because of inequality. What was also striking in the conversation was that anti-systemic movements that emerged on a world scale, particularly in the 70s and 80s, in Latin America, they've been the most radical. They actually move beyond just being oppositional movements. They threw up parties. And it is those parties 
that have been bringing about fundamental changes in Latin America today. So in a sense, South Africa's debate about whether party <coughs> or not is actually backward. Now, the other point to make is that, you see, NUMSA has, a, the moment has a deep significance around the working class. For the first time in 100 years, workers are turning their backs on petty bourgeois leadership of their struggle. So whether it's Gandhi, whether it's the Mbekis, etc., even Madiba, they are turning their back on that and they are reaffirming their self-confidence to lead and to step onto the stage of society. They are reaffirming values of worker power, solidarity, social justice. Now, NUMSA is really trying to reach out to communities. Right now, they are building local forums across the country. And increasingly, the gap between workers, the, un the precariat, the unemployed, particularly young people, uh, and the permanently unemployed in our society are all in dialogue in this process with NUMSA. I think that's very, very important. The other point around this is that NUMSA is really trying to find something new. It is not taking a big leap just into electoral politics. Uh, this happened in Zimbabwe and there was a false start. This happened in Zambia and it was a false start with workers' parties being thrown up. NUMSA is having a symposium next week and they've invited 200 guests. They've invited all the leading progressive and left parties that are in democracies today to have a dialogue with them about strategy, about politics, and how to engage and go forward. And I think I'm not clear what form it's going to take. It could be a movement, it could be a, a deepening of the front <coughs> politics, it could be a party. Uh, just two final comments quickly to end up because there were specific questions. Um, there was the question of the BRICS. Now, well, it was part of a larger story you were telling, but, but in brief, I mean, I think the jury's out on the methodology of the BRICS bank. I mean, how's it going to lend money? Um, is it going to be based on cost recovery, etc.? And, and essentially, there, 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 are, there are a few possibilities or, or interpretations around it. This is a bank that could end up within the current financial architecture that's there uh, at its apex, the World Bank and the IMF, and it could be one of the same. Okay? The other possibility is that it could become increasingly China-centric. It could become a bank that increasingly entrenches the power of China across the global south. The third possibility, given this crisis that we are in, is that this bank becomes embedded in a larger vision of an alternative world order. And right now, the BRICS are not coherent enough to articulate an alternative vision, a counter-hegemonic vision, an alternative <coughs> vision for world order. Finally, just to say on, 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 on democracy, I, I was a democratic socialist inside the, the Communist Party. Uh, my generation journeyed inside the Communist Party because we were excited about democracy, actually. Uh, my imagination was shaped in the 80s. I marched in the streets, I did all of those things. Democracy was important for me, and that's why we were inside the Communist Party. Now, in the, in, in the current context, I think we shouldn't confuse the experiences, the historical experiences we've had of socialism with where the left is going today in the world. Actually, the collapse of the Soviet Union has liberated left politics, the left imagination across the planet. There's a new left in the making, and it's a left that's really wanting to take democracy very seriously. And actually, it is reclaiming democracy. It is taking it back from capital. I also think it's important for us to recognize that democracy and capitalism are not the same thing. They are not umbilically connected. The history of modern democracy, actually, 
is a struggle against capitalism and to deepen freedoms and to deepen rights. Now, that's where I'm coming from. And in the South African context, on the left, I mean, I'm editing a series on Marxism called Democratic Marxism. We just put out the first volume. There's a second volume will be out next year. We are exploring these ideas. I mean, one of the dimensions of this, for example, is the participatory dimension of our democracy. And this is where I agree with Colella. There are ways in which we can empower citizenship from below in local spaces. There are experiences we can learn from. Uh, participatory budgeting in Brazil, amazing. Participatory councils in the slums in Venezuela, in Bolivia, what's happening, in rural India. Participatory democracy is very, very <coughs> important for deepening and strengthening democracy. The other thing around this is more rights, not less. There's an amazing debate going on amongst uh, progressive legal academics and lawyers in our country about transformative constitutionalism. Our rights are not just the rights in the Constitution. We actually can constitute more rights from below if we want to. I'm part of a campaign right now that wants to champion food sovereignty in South Africa. And the Constitution provides for us to have food, um, but it doesn't go far enough. The current discourse is about food security. And food security actually is linked to the current <coughs> systemic forces. 12 million people go to bed hungry in South Africa. That, that's serious. <coughs> that's an undercount. Food sovereignty is really about giving control to the food system, production, consumption, to people. And it's about developing small-scale farmers. It's about developing urban agriculture that can feed towns, cities, and villages, and so on. That's the kind of democracy I'd like to see going forward. Um, I'll make this as quick as possible. Um, on the gender transformation issue, uh, citizens, young, old, blue, black, are never going to take gender transformation seriously until um, beyond just government, but any decision-making institutions and institutional places of power start taking gender. Oh, ignore me. I thought it was on mute. Sorry. It's fine. It's now on mute. But until we get um, gender transformation beyond numbers, 50% quotas, we're going nowhere. Um, an illustration of that um, that happened this week is the KZN Health Department's decision to give or to force young people who are going for adversity to take contraceptives. What was completely absent in that was any discussion about gender, women's rights, their, their rights to their own bodies. And it became clear that no one, including the women who were part participated in that decision, even thought of a response to that critique. That's because all throughout decision-making bodies, when we think about gender, as long as the numbers are right, then apparently women have been considered and gender power dynamics have been resolved. And that's just not the case. Um, the question about protest and youth voice. Uh, I agree with you 100%. Um, young people will always do something. The question is what they'll do. Uh, somebody once said to me, it's time that all of us, but young people in particular, stop making their voices louder and start making their arguments stronger. And I think that, that for me is the response to protest is, is convenient. But I think if you, a young person had an option beyond protest, they would take it. And we need to start giving them options beyond protest. So that when I realize my beer is warm, that I can actually go to a municipal manager rather than take to the street and hope that somebody hears me. Um, I'm going to make a, a passing comment about EFF and the NUMSA moment. 
Uh, I'm going to just skirt around it by saying I disagree with Carol. I think what the EFF um, has brought to my attention is the fact that young people, like we said earlier, are very interested in political education. And um, a lot of young people who have joined the EFF, and I've asked them the reasons why, is because they see it as an opportunity for political education, strangely enough. Um, and so I think if we, if we just discard um, an appetite for, for learning about how politics works and how power is structured, then we're not seeing what, what's actually happening in people's lives. Um, and the final comment I'll make um, really is to, to say, one of the things that have, has driven my interest in success and pitch, pictures of success um, comes from um, having observed too many <coughs> weddings in the last three or four years of my life. Um, a lot of young people <coughs> will say one of the biggest worries that they have is the idea of getting married because they have to have 50,000 rand for Lobola and they have to put on a wedding for 250,000 rand. Um, that is for me one of those things where something that is as basic in our lives as the decision for a life partner has become subsumed by what BES told us and what pictures have been created of what, where, where blackness needs to go and where black success needs to go. And like Colera was saying earlier, we could have the big discussions about capitalism and what it, what it means in the broader. I'm more interested in the fact that a friend of mine has got a 200,000 rand debt because she needed to put on a wedding that showed her success and her family's success. And how do we start to tackle that? Because that has an immediate implication. Thank you very much. About <laughs> the way, can I say just something about workers? I mean, workers, I mean, you know, we love workers, right? But they're not the only, they're not the only constituency. I mean, society is so vast. Um, and, 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 and these people have got, you know, so many different aspirations. Uh, and so, you know, even, even worker organizations only succeed when they hook up with all these other constituents. Thank you. Okay, uh, I've been asked to announce that uh, the good news is that for those who are able, the conversation can continue. There are refreshments next door there. Before we, uh, we, we, we end, uh, uh, a, a big thank you to all the speakers, uh, but also uh, a, another thanks, which uh, I think is very important. Uh, one, of the, one, one of the secrets about the Center for the Study of Democracy is, is that I'm the director of the center. I don't actually do anything <coughs> except write academic books and supervise postgraduate students. Uh, the first person who, who, who actually runs most of the center is Johnny Salamani at the back there. Um, who put most of this together. But, but there's a very important other aspect which, which needs to be mentioned, which is about 18 months ago, I think it was, Johnny came to me and said, look, uh, there, we, we, have a, we have research associates, we have postgrad students, there's quite a lot of energy at the center, and why don't we put that to work in, in, in organizing projects and events? Uh, and uh, that's in fact what's happened. Uh, this evening's presentation, this evening's event, and the next three were put together by Sharon Krunmeyer, 
who is one of our research associates uh, who, who took the initiative and she'll be uh, running the whole program. Uh, so I do want to thank both of my <coughs> colleagues uh, who've put an immense amount of effort into this. Uh, I think it has been rewarded this evening and, and uh, hopefully we'll see you all at the next three, uh, which will be as rich uh, and as uh, illuminating. Thank you all very much. Thank you. You know, uh, this, I mean, the web by, 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 by